I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel and get the opportunity to be here at the South Campus most Sundays. And we are uh, studying through the book of John, the Gospel of John in the New Testament, written by one of Jesus' disciples, uh, the one whom he loved. John lived longer than all the other disciples. He, every one of the disciples um, died a martyr's death. Uh, John, however, lived to be the oldest, in, well into his 90s, and um, died exiled on an isle, island, Patmos. Uh, thank you. You can go there today. There's not anything to see, but you can go there. Um, and that is where he died. And he's writing this gospel, uh, this uh, story of Jesus, so that the reader will believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And in believing that, and believing all that he did, that you would have eternal life. And so when you get to chapter 14, you're a little over halfway through the gospel. Jesus has concluded his uh, public ministry, and beginning in chapter 13, he starts this um, private conversation with the disciples called the Upper Room Discourse. And it is where he is clearly telling them that he is departing, that when he goes to Jerusalem for this final Passover, which in John 14 is just a few days away, um, that he will die. Um, he's going to die for them, and that he'll be buried. And then when he raises from the dead, he will depart and ascend to the right hand of the Father. And now this is catching the disciples off guard. It is throwing them into a confusion. It is um, bringing a, a, about a, a serious crisis in their life because this is not how they thought things were going to go. These are men that left everything to follow Jesus. They never heard anybody teach the way he taught, and they never saw anybody do the things that he did. And they thought they were going into Jerusalem and that Jesus, who appeared just the Sunday before, and everyone raising, uh, waving palm branches and declaring him to be the king, that he would go in and take his rightful place and kick Rome out. And the new age of a Davidic king would begin. But what they didn't know is that day was coming, yes, but something had to happen beforehand. And it's the purpose of Jesus' first coming. Not to rule and to reign, but to sacrifice his life and to die for the sins of the world. And so the disciples are just dawning on them. What Jesus has been telling them all along, it's now seeming to be more real. And so that's the mood that we step into this morning in John chapter 14. You know, one of the things about this chapter uh, 14 and 15 and 16 is that Jesus is going to introduce to the disciples the coming of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the eternal Trinity, the Godhead, the three persons and one God and the mysterious Trinity that the church has 
sought to articulate um, its belief in. Um, and so you'll see the beginnings of that. And one of the men who um, kind of our history would come from um, is St. Patrick in the um, articulating of the Trinity. Um, as Jeff said, he was a missionary, one of the great missionaries of the church. He took the gospel to Ireland. And um, in fact, they, they, the story goes, the legend, the myth, there's lots of myths and legends about him. I mean, some people just think he was a leprechaun. He probably wasn't. Because um, those aren't real. And but that he not only took the gospel to Ireland, but that he also introduced alcohol to Ireland. Uh, this would have been the 4th century, which it seems hard for me to believe there wasn't any alcohol there before that. But, um, you know, whatever, okay? It's a good, you know, it's my kind of missionary. Um, well, anyways, all right. I know, it's the end of spring break. And this, uh, you know. All right, so here, here it is. So, so he's there, and, and what he's known for, though, is, is he articulates the Trinity, he goes there. He lived between, so he's born in like 387, dies in 461, lived a long life there, um, but a life that was full of trouble. And he got to Ireland, uh, he was born in Scotland, but got to Ireland because he was taken captive. So if you think about the time period, Rome has fallen. Um, the world is not under the protection of the Caesar anymore. And um, so what happens is, you know, Great Britain, England, all this area goes crazy, and um, the uh, Irish uh, slave traders come to Scotland. He's, he's taken at 16 years old and, and to captivity. And it is during that time he ends up meeting Jesus and then becomes a missionary. But... One of the things he was doing is he's there, it's about 441 um, is the time period, and he's explaining to one of the kings there in Ireland. They had these tribal kings. And he's been telling him about the gospel, and he's been telling him about the triune God. This was very important to Patrick. And that the Father has always existed, and the Son has always existed. And the Spirit has always existed, and they are one God. And the king says, why, uh, how, how, can, how can these things be? And so what Patrick does is he stoops down, and, and this is a pretty certifiable part of history, picks up the leaf of a shamrock. This is why it's the emblem of Ireland. And so he picks up the leaf, and he says, you know, what, what is this? And the guy says, oh, it's, it's a leaf. And then he begins to touch the um, bulbs on the, the leaf. And he says, well, what's this? And the guy says, well, that's a leaf. And he says, well, what's it? well, that's a leaf. And it has one stem. And so it's, here's Patrick, you know, early in church history, giving a, you know, a bad example of the Trinity. Um, but it worked. I mean, it was good. It was, it was good enough for the king to say, okay, I, that helps me understand this mystery. Three persons and one God. And so he believes and is baptized. And it's the beginning of about 150,000 people coming to know Christ and the planting of over 300 churches 
numerous hundreds of bishops that grew out of that ministry in Ireland. And very much of what Patrick's theology was and why he cared so deeply about the Trinity was because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit as it's described in Jesus' words to his disciples, John 14, 3, 16. It's very familiar with this, as well as the other ministries of the, of the Holy Spirit, as Paul will describe. So, so I want us to, to do this. We're going to read through chapter 14. I, I didn't get all the way through first hour. I'm hoping to get a little further um, here. But th- this is how it begins. Jesus says to his disciples, Don't let your hearts... Be troubled, or let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That they're they're troubled. They they felt troubled. It's it's different than Jesus's trouble back in chapter thirteen, where he knows he's being betrayed by one of his closest, and he is uh, he knows the agony of the cross is is literally just hours away. There's a trouble that Jesus feels, the disciples' trouble comes from just being disoriented, being confused, being, being having the, uh, the script changed on them, the, the rug pulled out from under them. But Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe in me. It's a statement of deity. And then in verse 2, he says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. You know, so the plans had had changed. Everything they'd put their hope in had come off the rails. And, And you feel the weight of this when you consider that the disciples, they left everything to follow Jesus. And here it's coming to the place where they're realizing that what they thought they were following, what they thought the plan was, isn't the plan. That Jesus has had His own plan all along. And even though you can look back and you can see from the beginning of John's Gospel, Jesus has been telling them the plan... They evidently just didn't hear it or they didn't understand it or they were so uh, consumed with their own plans and and desires. And none of those were bad. I mean, if Jesus went in and and kicked Rome out and and Israel had their land back and, and, and and a Davidic king on the throne, those would be good things. They would just be far lesser things. If Jesus had done that... They would have enjoyed a few years of Davidic kingship. And then they would have died in their sins. Jesus is saying to them, I came to do something much greater. I came to prepare the way. And to prepare the way, it means He's going to die on the cross for their sins. He's going to be buried and uh, take on their death. He's going to be raised to new life so that they can follow Him. That His death for sins can be their death for sins. And His resurrection is the first fruit. It's the foretaste. It's the deposit of their resurrection to come. But their new life can begin 
now in Christ. And while they're troubled, the, the security they'd been clutching to was vanishing into thin air. Jesus is saying, don't be troubled. Believe. Trust me. Trust God and trust also in me. That's His counsel in the midst. He doesn't say, you know, hey guys, shake this off. You're better than this. You're stronger than this. You can trust Me, He says. You know, the, what Jesus is talking about in 2 through 4, He's talking about heaven. And as He talks about heaven, He talks about a, a place and um, away, and, it, it, and I want to say this: it, it is a very real place that Jesus is talking about, tangible and physical. It is a hope. It is a destination. The Bible has a lot to say uh, about heaven. But when Jesus is talking about it, you realize he's talking about not less than a place. It is a place, but he's talking about something so much more than just a place. He's talking about a relationship. See, there are no details that he gives. You know, what I mean, just, there's, that there's room and, and that the place is being prepared and that eternity is not so much a place it is, but it's more than that. It's, it's a relationship. See, it's the place where God dwells with us. It's, it's a place completely sustained and supported by God. It's a place in which we're enveloped by His beauty and His majesty and His, and His glory, and it's the place we were always meant to be with God. And, and we long for that and we feel that. And then Jesus says, and I'm, I'm coming back for you, and, and He's not here, not here, He's not talking about our death that then ushers us into His presence. Paul will say, absent from the body, Present with the Lord. It's why we read these, this at funerals. But he's not talking about that specifically, although that is true. And he's not talking about coming to them um, after the resurrection in those 40 days where he makes appearances, although he does that. What he's talking about is when he's going to come on the on the day what, what the... the New Testament calls the parousia or the, the rapture where the trumpet sounds. Paul writes it this way in 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So that we'll always be with the Lord. And then Paul goes on to say, Now, encourage each other with these words. That's what he's talking about. I will come for you. So our hope is a person. And Jesus, our, our home is a person. One writer puts it this way. He says, the reason 
that the best marriages or the reason that the best careers or the best earthly joys always leave us restless is because our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. See, the Christian says... uh, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, a baby feels hunger and there's such a thing as food and a duck wants to swim and there's such a thing as water. And he says, and if I find in myself desires which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. None of the earthly pleasures satisfy. It doesn't mean the universe is a fraud. It just means the earthly pleasures weren't meant to satisfy. They just were meant to suggest, to give us a foretaste, to ignite the longing in us for the home we were always meant to be. You know, Jesus will say a couple of things. We'll get to it in chapter 17 where he called the High Priestly Prayer, where he prays to the Father. It is a beautiful chapter. And one of the things he says in it, listen to this. This is in chapter 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, believers, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Listen to what he's saying. He's, I want, Father, I want these, my, my, my own, the believers, I want them to be with me at ground zero so that when your glory is revealed in me, when your love is poured out on me, that they're there. That they'll know your love. They'll bask in your glory. Our home is personal. And when we're troubled, and we feel anxious, and like everything's closing in, we're meant to, to meditate on that. In fact, John will write in his letter, 1 John 3, Beloved, we're God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And then He goes on and says, And everyone who hopes in this, and hopes in Him, purifies themselves. You know what he's saying? That as we meditate on and we long for and as our imaginations try to imagine what that will be like, that transforms us. Isn't that great? Don't be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Kindle in yourself the longing. When you stand with me, 
the love of the Father is poured out upon us. And you'll go, oh, yeah, that's what I felt. That was it. And then you have an eternity with it. Paul will quote Isaiah in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart can possibly imagine what God's prepared for those that love Him. Isn't that great? You can't imagine it. You can't imagine a world without sin. You can't imagine a world that's not stained. You can't imagine a world that, that things aren't broken and you're not broken. Seems impossible, but that's our home. And when we realize that this world is not our home, and our longing begins to transform us, see, there's a divine ache that comes in, this holy longing. This, as one writer says, a homesickness for a place we've never been, but we know we were made for. And then you tend to think, well, something must be wrong with me. I, I just can't. Be satisfied with anything. What well, your satisfaction is in Jesus now and a longing for then. And, and it's an ache that can't be fully satisfied by anything in this world, but yet it can be satisfied. What you're looking for can be found. And our job as believers, our role is, listen, figuring out how to not have a bitterness and hatred towards the world and those in the world when it lets you down. You know, instead, instead, we want to love those around us. We want to long for them to experience this. You know, as it relates to your job, your vocation, and it doesn't fully fulfill you. You go, oh yeah, that's right. I remember that. There was the curse and the ground's cursed and the so my job, of course, is not going to fully fulfill me. But you begin to walk in the works that were created for you before the foundations of time, Ephesians 2.10 says. You begin to live out the poem that God has written in your life. You go, oh yeah. That, that's, that's more like it. Or as it relates to a marriage that doesn't meet your expectations. It doesn't live up to everything we thought we promised. Except what we promised was in sickness or in health. Good and in bad. The best of his part. Oh yeah, because it's just... It's meant as I live here and I love here and I forgive in this. Kindle the longing for the home I was created for. So I don't have to be bitter. I don't have to harbor anger. Or friendships that disappoint. Lewis will go on to say, he says, you know, a park's a lovely place to walk. It's a lousy place to live. You know what happens to a park when people start living in it? Earth. That's what happens. 
Because when people live there, it ruins it because it's not home. Your work, your relationships, your money, they're not home. You can't live there. But you say, these wonderful things I love on earth, if I make them my home, the things that will really give me joy, I forfeits it forever. I'll settle for it always being, as Lewis says, December, but never Christmas. So here's what he says. I'm going, I'm, you know the way. And then Thomas. Thomas is going to express the universal longing, or the universal fear. Let me say it that way. And Philip is going to express in verse 8, the universal longing. Thomas, the universal fear. Philip, the universal longing. Look at how they do that. So in verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? This is the fear. This is the, we don't know. I mean, well, what happens after this? We don't know where you're going. You know what Jesus says to him? You do know. I'm the way. And the way, and the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Thomas, you don't have to be afraid. You know the way because you know me. And then Philip expresses what I think is the universal longing. Philip said to him in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. I mean, Philip, how else do you explain what you've seen? The Father's in me, and I'm in the Father. You know what Jesus is going to say? And I, I am in you, and you're in me. And the Father's in Him, and He's in the Father, and it means, we'll see as the Spirit comes in here in a minute, as believers, we get caught up in the Trinity, so to speak. He's going to say, I don't leave you as orphans. I'm with you. You know, here's the reality. When Jesus says, I am the way, people balk and go, whoa, wait a minute. Can't say Jesus is the only way. To which I would say, yes, we can. And here's why. See, the, the reason we would say that is this. Christianity is not a religion that is a prescription. Every other religion in the world, you do this to get this. You do that to get that. You live this way to secure this position in the next life, or, or whatever it ends up being. It, but Christianity is not 
a prescription. Christianity is a person. It is a relationship. Jesus does not say, listen, I know the way. Buddha, Muhammad, you know, the, David Koresh, I mean, they, they would say, I know the way. Follow me there. It's not what Jesus is saying. I am the way. It, it is not Jesus saying, hey, listen, I know the truth. Listen to my truth. Believe my truth. Jesus is saying, I am the truth. I am life. Every living being that draws breath owes their life to me, Jesus is saying. You know, it's like this one guy gives an illustration. He says, it's like if you want to date a girl. Let's see if there's any single guys in here. It's about as close as I'll get to dating advice, I guess. But you want to get to know the girl, and you want to know what's the way to her heart. You know, and she'll say, well, you know, I like this, or I like to do that, or I, you know, this is the cut of diamond I, I enjoy, or, you know, whatever. Because it's not a formula. I mean, you, you, you ultimately can't read a book to get to know a person. The way to get to know the person is to know the person how they need to be known and how they, you can't say, well, listen, I, this is how I'm going to find my wife. I'm just going to buy, you know, I'm going to live in a bachelor pad all my life and buy season tickets to minor league hockey. It, that's not going to work. You, you get to know them. You pursue them. And what you really discover is that it is not actually you that have been pursuing. It's God that's been pursuing a relationship with you. It is it is getting to know someone. And that's why Jesus says, I am the way. And there is no other way to the Father. The Father is a person. The Son is a person. The Spirit is a person. They are God, one God. There is no other way to get there. If God's highest priority was for us to act right, you know, like a classroom school of children, he would not have needed to come in the flesh and die for our sins. Our kindergartner teacher knows, you know, you punish the bad, reward the good, you get great at the end. No, he sent his son to become a son, to take on humanity, to, so that we could know the Father. Jesus didn't die so we'd be better citizens. He died so that we could be brought near into relationship. He says, don't be troubled. I am the way. Now, Let's, let's, um, all right, let's do this. All right, so look at verse 12. I, I was going to skip this, but I don't want to skip it. Look at what it says. And the reason I'm not going to skip it is because you're weird, okay? I'll tell you what I mean. Christians, we're the weirdest people on the planet sometimes. 
we, we can read the book of John in all of the mystery and majesty of who Jesus is. And you know what? Then we'll pull out one verse and we'll, we'll get weird with it. Look at what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Now, what he's going to tell us is how we're going to do those greater works is that the Spirit's going to come. He'll say later, it's, it's better that I leave so that the Spirit comes. Somehow that's, that's better, although the disciples were looking and said, no, we like having you, and, but the Spirit's better and we'll do greater. And then he says in 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You ask anything in my name, I will do it. And I think the reason, I mean, there is a lot of people that would say, you know what, I'm a believer, and have been completely disappointed by God. Because I asked, I even said it right, in Jesus' name, amen, I said at the end of it. And that verse isn't true. I asked, and that's not what I got. And I would say this, the context is key and to read all the words. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do that or so that, in order that, the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now let me explain the context to you and then talk about the Holy Spirit for a minute. But... Here's what Jesus is saying. What Jesus has been saying the entire Gospel of John is this. What I do is the Father's will. In fact, so you, if you've been in our study with John, sometimes you've heard this before and you think, Jesus, why do you keep saying this? I don't do my own will. I don't even say my own things. I do what the Father uh, will is. I, I do the works of the Father. I I speak not on my own authority. I speak on the authority of the Father. I speak the Father's words. I speak what He's given me. I do what He's given me to do. And when we ask in His name, we're asking according to Jesus' desire to fulfill the Father's will. And so it is not about our will as though we go to prayer, you know, say, okay, you know, prayer for a lot of us, I mean, if we're honest, let's be honest, we can be honest here, is sometimes it's a complaint department. You know, sometimes it's, it's, it's the wish list. And I would say this, all of those things are fine. But our expectation of prayer, listen, our, the intimacy of prayer is that we ushered into the throne room of God because the Son of God is seated at the right hand of the Father and says, oh yeah, He comes in because He's mine. And the Son is the advocate to the Father and says, that's mine, He's mine, she's mine. They don't owe anything here. I've paid it all. And God the Father wants us to come into prayer with all of our prayer. And our trust is that like little 
children who want to trust their parents that what God is about is His will and His will is the best. And sometimes what we desire isn't exactly His will. And so we're left with a disappointment now, but I promise you there will be a day where we'll bow before Him face to face and we'll then look back and go, oh, you are good. Your will, as I look back now, is perfect. And I couldn't see it then. And in our prayer, what we're trusting God is that He will accomplish His will in a way that through the Son, us being in Christ and Christ in us, is glorified. Now, one of the ways to think about this, think of them like moon prayers. I'm not sure this is a great example. I might recant this someday, okay? But this is a good shot for me today. So the moon. This is like a dead rock. It's got no life on it, but it's beautiful. But it's not beautiful in and of itself. It's beautiful because it reflects the sun. Now, the moon, the moon is in gravitational orbit around the earth. And the earth is in gravitational orbit around the sun. And what the moon does is the moon brings glory and beauty and shines on the earth the glory of the sun, but yet the moon cannot on its own go, you know what, I'm tired of circling around the earth. I don't want to do that anymore. I'm going to take my own shot at going around the sun. If it does that, I will tell you, it will burn up immediately. Its protection is that it's in the earth. And, and so when we pray in Jesus' name in a way that that reflects and shines the glory of the Father, that's what's happening. Our will is so interlocked with Jesus' will, and the center of Jesus' will is the will of the Father. And as we pray, take your desires, take our desires, absolutely take our pain, take our hurts, take our longings. And what we want is to say, and whatever shines your glory the brightest, that's what I want. That's what I want. And then that's why Jesus is going to say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And in verse 16, and I will ask the Father and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. Now we'll talk more about the Holy Spirit in the weeks to come because we'll get to all in this passage. But one of the things the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit prays along with us. Romans chapter 8 says. In the depths of it. So the Holy Spirit is with us and in us and is called the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. And so we are in Christ and Christ is in us and the Spirit prays along with us and utters and groans at places where we pray and we go, I, I don't even have words for what I feel. I don't even know how to pray. That's okay. Because the Spirit's praying for you and with you. 
to the Father mediated by the Son. And so you have the audience of the Father in all of His majesty and the Son in all of His glory and the Spirit in all of His power completely and totally engaged with you. You have the full audience of the Trinity. And the other thing the Spirit does is there to remind you when your heart's troubled that you're a child of God and that God loves you. The easiest thing to believe when our spirit is troubled is that God has forgotten about us or He doesn't love me or He's not pleased with me. That's why we go in Jesus' name. We don't go in our own merits. We don't go in our own sufficiency. We don't go in our own sinfulness and failures. We go in the name of Jesus. And the Spirit goes, I'm reminding you here, you're His child. Don't let your heart be troubled. And then Jesus will end this whole deal in 27. At peace, I bring you. I bring you peace. Not like peace the world does. I bring you real peace. I bring you the peace you're longing for. Listen, I, I will tell you quickly, and then I want to read a little bit of St. Patrick, and then we're going to go home, all right? But the peace Jesus brings, and he says, it's not like the world. Listen, this is what the world does. The world says, listen, if you have this, if you buy this, if you do this, if you, you know, this peace. I mean, that's what they're selling, their peace of mind or peace of soul or, you know, peace. And yet, you know what? Our world is absolutely losing its mind. Anxiety, higher than it's ever been. Depression, more than it's ever been. I have on my, on my Apple Watch, which I'm not wearing today, on my Apple Watch, like three times a day. You know what it reminds me to do? Breathe. Like, oh, I I might have forgot to breathe, I guess. But it is part of a, of a, today, it's $1.2 billion industry that is on the rapid rise. That is aimed at your anxiety and your depression and your self-esteem in the form of an app. Let me just read one to you. It says, peace isn't easy to find, but downloading this meditation app is easy. Okay. Now, here's what you get. The subscription, I'm not going to tell you the app, but there's two major players. You can figure it out. The subscription grants you access to a new daily calm meditation every day and a new feature called Sleep Stories, narrated by Matthew McConaughey. I mean, that's the best we got? Mindful music, a central meditation tab with dozens of classes that offer 7 to 21 days of focusing on anxiety, stress, happiness, self-esteem, and much more. You're like, I can't write jokes this well. Jesus says, 
I give you peace. And it's the kind of peace that comes from knowing the end of the story. You know, you're going to watch the basketball tournament that's coming up and take the game, and you're going to watch the game later, but you find out the score and your team wins. It doesn't matter if now when you watch it recorded, your team gets behind. You don't have to be stressed. You don't have to feel anxious because you know, you know, it's okay. I know my team wins. That's the kind of peace. Is it possible? Read through a little church history and you see Every one of the disciples died a martyr's death singing hymns and joyfully praising God. And they're not the only ones. Church history is full of men and women who knew this peace that even in the midst of trouble, even when their hearts were troubled, they believed. These are St. Patrick's own words in his confession. I'll close with this. I am the sinner, Patrick. And I'm the most unsophisticated of people, the least of all Christians. And for many people, I am the most contemptible. My family owned a small estate near a village my father was a deacon. My grandfather was a priest. It was near there that I was taken captive when I was 16. Taken into captivity in Ireland. And at that time, I was ignorant of the true God, along with many thousands of others. But thank the Lord because it was in that captivity that he opened up my understanding to my unbelief so that even at this late stage in my life I could become aware of my failings and then remembering my need I could turn with all my heart to the Lord my God. When he looked upon my lowliness and had mercy of my ignorance and he loved me and cared for me before I even knew him. See, for there is not, nor ever was, any other God. There was none before Him, and there shall not be any after Him. And His Son, Jesus Christ, whom we declare to have always existed with the Father. He was with the Father spiritually before the world came into being, begotten of the Father before the beginning of anything in a way that is beyond our speech. Through Him all things were made and all things visible and invisible are held together by Him. He was made man and He conquered death and then was taken back into the heavens to the Father. And He has bestowed on Him all power above every name in heaven and on earth and under the earth so that every tongue may confess that our Lord and God is Jesus Christ, and in Him we believe, looking forward to His coming in the very, very near future. And the Father has plentifully and graciously poured out upon us the Holy Spirit, 
the gift and pledge of immortality that makes those who believe and listen into sons of God the Father and fellow heirs with Christ. This is what I profess. This is who I worship. One God in Trinity. One God in sacred name. Make room. Might that be our profession? In the midst of trouble and anxiety and suffering, confusion, which comes as part of part of life, that we would believe. Father, I pray you would help us this morning.